Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during the pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, produced in partnership with the American Geriatric Society, we'll be focusing on issues surrounding vaccinating vulnerable populations. To discuss this, our IDSA member, Dr. Joshua Barocas, and American Geriatric Society members, Drs. Timothy Farrell and Melissa DiTallo. Thank you, doctors, for being with me. Dr. Barocas, I'll start with you. Communities of color have long experienced pervasive health equities, including higher rates of COVID-19 infections and deaths. How have long-standing inequities impacted vaccine rollout to date? There have been pervasive health inequities, uh, particularly for communities of color in the United States. I think these are largely, if not entirely, driven by structural racism. Uh, We make it hard for people to access services. Hospitals aren't necessarily always convenient to get to by car and you know, at least in, in some cities don't even have access via train or bus. Healthcare is unaffordable. Certain states refuse to expand Medicaid. From lots of work, we know that nearly all health comes are improved in states that have expanded Medicaid. Now, when people finally do make it to hospitals, they're met with long lines, paperwork, and lots of stigma for some conditions. And a lot of these structural issues, I think, have led to high rates of housing insecurity and homelessness, food insecurity, untreated mental illness, untreated substance use. All of these, in turn, have led to worse outcomes from COVID. So this stems back and and is pervasive. The problems of inequitable vaccine rollout shouldn't be surprising to anyone. It's all an issue of access and resources that we just don't provide to vulnerable populations. I saw a recent study by the Kaiser Family Foundation that showed that nationally vaccination rates among whites are one more than one and a half times higher than that of Hispanic populations and of Blacks. Now, to his credit, the president has committed $10 billion to efforts designed to ensure COVID-19 vaccines are equitably distributed, with $6 billion of that going to community health centers. And I think that that is a huge step. But the question really is, is all of that enough to co- overcome all of the barriers to access that are so longstanding? And, and I don't know that it is. Thank you, Dr. Barocas. Dr. Farrell, turning to you now, many individuals find online registration for COVID-19 vaccination and drive up or drive through vaccination sites to be very convenient. But for some individuals who lack the internet or devices or cars, like the elderly, these procedures can pose a significant barrier to vaccination. How can these barriers be overcome? Ironically, just before this call, I was trying to register a family member to be vaccinated, and I had my internet connection and my laptop, and I was able to get an appointment. But of course, our older adults are not always able to do so, and particularly if they are cognitively impaired. So I think this comes down to proactive outreach, and certainly ride services and transportation are important, but it's not enough to do that. We often have to bring vaccine to patients. One way to do that is through services like home-based primary care, but we know among the approximately two to four million homebound older adults in the United States, only about 12% benefit from home-based primary care. So I think that's one area 
that we can really improve in terms of our infrastructure and something that really should be in place to prepare for the next pandemic. Additionally, items such as uh, language, um, you know, maybe an interpreter is needed. Maybe we need to look at health literacy in terms of modifying vaccine information materials. So in Minnesota, Minneapolis, there was a very successful effort in which vaccine materials were translated for Somali-speaking populations there, and they were able to vaccinate everyone in a high-rise apartment tower. And then also technological literacy. Certainly, we cannot assume that, that older adults can navigate these systems. Many can quite successfully, actually a surprising number, but we need to have some help there. And finally, having caregiver support. The Biden administration's uh, infrastructure, I think, was mentioned just a moment ago, and they're looking at you know, increasing uh, support for caregivers. And this is one place where we can really help immediately with getting caregivers vaccinated so that they can then support their loved ones at home. The approach is, is certainly includes things like transportation, but must, must be uh, fairly broad in its, in its reach in order to really solve this problem, particularly among those older adults who are homebound and cognitively impaired. I just wanted to echo the importance of bringing the vaccine to the homes uh, for older adults who are homebound. I work in a home-based primary care program, and we see patients for all of their primary care visits at home, specifically because they have difficulty accessing healthcare otherwise. When special transportation, such as wheelchair vans or even sometimes stretcher transportation can be arranged, homebound older adults can find ways to get to vaccine sites but even with these special transportation options, we've found that about 25% of our home-based primary care panel still can't leave their home to get to the vaccine site. And th that's the most critical group to be able to identify. Thank you, doctors. What other barriers to vaccination are you witnessing on the front lines, Dr. Barocas? Do you see misinformation or concerns about the safety and efficacy of the vaccines as one of the major challenges to reaching populations heavily impacted by COVID? I don't want to minimize the effect that misinformation, safety concerns might have on the vaccine rollout. But I think that focusing very narrowly on that absolves us of, of some of the responsibilities for, of all of our other shortcomings. So yes, misinformation is a, is a huge problem. And I think that I'd be very interested to hear how that is, how that's playing out in our aging and, and elderly populations. But at the same time, we're not just fighting misinformation from the anti-vax community, but also we're we're seeing inaccurate statements released by drug companies. And there, there's this whole gamut of misinformation out there. But like I said, it's not the only issue. I think, and this has been touched on a few times, it's access. It's all about access and availability. So in Massachusetts, the state set up where I live, the state set up a mass vaccination site at Gillette Stadium, which is where the Patriots play. Now, Gillette's about 20 miles from Boston. It's not accessible. If you do a quick you know, Google Maps, it's not accessible by public transportation. So the question is, who's, who's, who does this serve when we put our mass vaccination sites that are a drive away, it serves people with resources who can get there. Conversely, our hospital opened vaccine sites and many hospitals have opened vaccine sites in places where that are accessible in the middle of the cities to some of our vulnerable 
communities with hours that say working families can attend. So post work hours, um, some have even done overnight vaccinations. For instance, the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless has partnered with the shelters here and has done this Herculean task of vaccinating the population experiencing homelessness because they're bringing the vaccines to the population. As was mentioned with some of the, the older populations who may not be able to, to get out of the house, we actually need to bring the vaccines to people. And in my world, this means going to shelters, going to methadone clinics, going to construction sites and train stations, and not simply relying on people to come to um, a mass vaccination site, because we know that this is all about resources, not just about misinformation. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Thank you, Dr. Barocas, for your insights. Dr. Detallo, the American Rescue Plan Act provides $7.5 billion to the CDC to prepare for, promote, administer, monitor, and track COVID-19 vaccines. How impactful do you think this funding will be on the resources needed by the aging population, and how would you recommend these funds be utilized for this often overlooked group? I think this funding will be very high impact in achieving some of the equity goals with the vaccine rollout. The CDC has already achieved a lot of important milestones in vaccination rates. So 80% of Americans 65 years or older have now received at least one dose, which is a huge success to celebrate. However, to reach that 20% of unvaccinated older adults, um, we do need to recognize the barriers that Dr. Farrell mentioned earlier that are faced by the vulnerable groups who are still getting left behind of the rapid rollout. So that includes the one in four older adults who don't have access to internet and the one in five older adults who cannot leave their homes without special transportation. To address these challenges, the CDC has actually already allocated $100 million to aging and disability networks to support removing these barriers from patients and families. That includes things like scheduling assistance, hotlines, establishing hotlines for people who prefer to use the telephone and may not be internet savvy, funding medical transportation like wheelchair vans to vaccine sites, and specifically cited in this funding stream has been connection with in-home vaccination options. That's really the largest remaining gap is that the in-home vaccination options are still incredibly rare. There's over 2 million homebound Americans, which is actually a larger population than nursing home residents in the U.S. And I would love to see the CDC build on the success of the Federal Pharmacy Partnership for Long-Term Care, which brought a dedicated vaccine supply to residents in nursing homes and assisted living facilities and expand a similar strategy to bring vaccines to the home. So to accomplish this, to increase the accessibility or availability of vaccines in the home, the funding would really need to be able to accomplish three things. The first is to identify homebound populations, which oftentimes this population is described as invisible to health systems because they're not regularly coming to clinic or interacting with the health system. The second would be to reserve a portion of the vaccine supply for them to make sure that there's some dedicated vaccine for 
homebound older adults. And the third would be to establish distribution partnerships with healthcare providers who are already working in the home. And I'll just use my own experience as an example um, with our home-based primary care program. We did not have access to COVID-19 vaccines, um, but we were able to partner with a home health agency, UW Healthcare Direct, who applied for a dedicated vaccine supply and has now given 160 vaccines to homebound patients and caregivers. This home health agency was able to build on that partnership and expand to be able to serve and administer vaccines in the home to any older adult referred to our county's Aging and Disability Resource Center. So I think this is a great example of a local success story. However, there's no national or in Wisconsin even statewide database of organizations giving vaccines in the home and no database of individuals who need vaccines in the home. So to really scale up a partnership like that would require resources from this funding stream and other areas may have the potential to develop similar partnerships if they can find ways to connect. This issue of reaching homebound older adults, she mentioned the invisible population of homebound older adults. You know, another subpopulation would be those who are so-called unrepresented or unbefriended who have no caregiver, no surrogate decision maker, no advanced health directive and lack decision-making capacity. Sometimes they're homeless, sometimes they're not. But when thinking about this invisible population, even among those folks, there's, there's folks that are exquisitely vulnerable who may not be able to really understand uh, what COVID is or why they need a vaccine, which presents additional challenges and needs for planning. So I would echo everything Dr. Detallo said and just say that, you know, we're, we're talking about oftentimes marginalized uh, populations who really are not in the headlines, but, you know, need additional attention in terms of vaccination outreach efforts. Distinction, excellence, service. Set yourself apart today. Become a fellow of IDSA. Visit idsociety.org slash to apply by May 31st. Eye-opening points, Drs. Farrell and Detallo. Thank you. Dr. Farrell, I'm going to stick with you. Have you observed any best practices for vaccinating hard-to-reach populations so far in any states or communities? There are some really innovative approaches going on to address vaccinating vulnerable populations. The first one is plan ahead, then plan ahead some more, and plan ahead some more. What I'm hearing from multiple stakeholders across the country is they need often three to four weeks of lead time. And it's often very laborious, sort of low tech, like phone calls and confirmation phone calls and establishing waiting lists, but that has proven to be quite effective. So just showing up you know, in an, in an area or a community doesn't work if there is not that advanced planning. A second thing would be community engagement. So I mentioned Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Department of Family Medicine has partnered with the community. They engage with a local imam who sort of got everyone in this the Somali community sort of engaged. They use CARES Act funding to have an embedded nurse who spoke Somali within that community. And they got everyone vaccinated and everyone scheduled for their second shot. Third would be leveraging existing public health infrastructure. So Alaska, you know, probably the most difficult place to, to do this is with the vast you know, geography out there. They have the highest percentage of people in the country receiving their second shot because they leverage a network of tribal health aids connect them with telemedicine to their hospitals. And then they use, you know, snowmobiles to get people a vaccine. There's a great picture of someone actually getting vaccinated on a snowmobile. 
Indiana has 15 area agencies on aging who partnered to create a statewide portal and then worked with emergency medical service to administer vaccine. So there's kind of a long list of those types of really innovative partnerships, not creating new infrastructure, but sort of being creative with their existing infrastructure. A fourth thing would be high tech. Dr. Totalo has told me about using geographical scheduling software in her area, complemented by low-tech telephone outreach. So there's that high-tech, low-tech, and geriatrics were more on the low-tech side, but um, both together can be really powerful. And lastly, and I'll say it again, plan ahead, plan ahead, plan ahead. That's what I've been hearing over and over again, um, you know, getting this you know, lined up three to four weeks in advance before actually putting shots in arms. This is Josh. One of the things, if I can just expand on that community engagement aspect that Dr. Farrell had mentioned, what I have seen is how important that is. You know, um, there have been a number of, uh, of programs that I've been told about where they're using vaccine ambassadors, people who are within, with lived experience, who have received the vaccine who've been educated on the side effects and and some of the the science behind the vaccine and can actually be an ambassador, be a trusted person within the community to help with the vaccine program. This has happened certainly with the population experiencing or previously experiencing homelessness, um, people with substance use disorders. The other part of that community engagement part that I think we, we typically forget is that we go in, certainly I do as a, as a medical provider, with wanting to tell. We want to tell people that this is safe. We want to tell people that this is important. Some of the stuff that I've done here in Boston, and I know many other people have done, is actually just start with listening. And it's amazing how much you can get done, how many people can actually be brought into the conversation by simply listening to their concerns, listening to what the resources are that they need or that their community needs in order to become vaccinated. In addition to that plan ahead, plan ahead, plan ahead, which I would fully endorse, the other aspect is engaging the community um, and and utilizing them and and treating them as equal partners. Great points all around, doctors. This last question I'd like to pose to the entire panel. Dr. Titalo, I'll start with you. Based on what we've learned from the current pandemic, what policy changes would you recommend to improve equitable access to vaccines and all of healthcare, frankly, in advance of future public health emergencies? One of the take-home messages for me from our discussion is that many of the barriers that we've all cited to accessing vaccines are long-standing inequities in our health system and have just been magnified by the pandemic. So this is a great opportunity to identify and address these in a collaborative way. So specifically for older or disabled individuals, scheduling mechanisms need to be inclusive of those without internet access and individuals with hearing or vision or cognitive impairment that may make it more difficult for them to access the channels that are out there in terms of identifying and getting connected with vaccines. 
The site of healthcare delivery also needs to be accessible for those who have physical, cognitive, or mental health barriers to coming to clinics or vaccination sites or transportation barriers, like Dr. Barocas mentioned, are the vaccine sites on in an area that can be accessed by public transportation. If we can identify the populations who are being overlooked, I do think reserving a portion of the vaccine supply remains important to make sure they have access to the vaccine and then establish partnerships with organizations or um, community organizations or healthcare providers who are already interacting with these groups. Use those partnerships and relationships to be able to, to reach these populations. Those would be the main recommendations. I think one thing that'll be important going forward, and this is something the American Geriatric Society has called for in our position statement on resource allocation in COVID and beyond, is conducting a post-pandemic review of how we did this, you know, in terms of resource allocation. And this gets to inequities to make sure we're not perpetuating inequities that might be baked into systems and making sure that there is a system the next time this happens, because the only thing worse than having an allocation system is not having one. The second thing I would point out is that I think this is a real opportunity to really maintain the spotlight on homebound and vulnerable older people. Yes, you know, there's a lot going on with vaccination, but they have ongoing needs. There's needs for decisional capacity assessment. We're woefully unprepared to do that in terms of our healthcare workforce, guardianship, caregiving, transportation. Dr. Natala mentioned expanded home-based primary care. These needs aren't going away. So hopefully the pandemic will go away, but these needs are not going away. And if and when another pandemic happens, probably when, unfortunately, we will need to have all of these things in place for our homebound older adults to make sure this goes much better the next time. So two things, post-pandemic review of resource allocation strategies to look at inequities. And secondly, just maintaining the emphasis and the focus on this invisible population, making them less invisible going forward. This isn't our only public health crisis ongoing right now, and it's certainly not going to be, unfortunately, our last pandemic. We've been caught flat-footed this time. We can't be caught flat-footed again because what we see is not just that our entire society suffers, but certain populations suffer disproportionately. One concrete way of doing this is lending from actually the business world, the manufacturing world, where they've said, you know what, instead of having what's called a just-in-time approach, where we're going to order things sort of as they come, we really need this just-in-case approach to pandemic preparedness, which means that we have stockpiles, that we have protocols in place, that people are ready and know how to put on PPE, and we know how to get resources to people. Because again, the people who are going to continue to be disproportionately affected by this or future public health crises or pandemics are going to be the people without access, whether they're homebound or homeless. Those are the populations that are going to suffer the most, and we need to be ready so that we can help protect them. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Barocas, Tatalo, and Farrell for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's Real-Time Learning Network covid19learningnetwork.org. 
Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.